Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we are going to discuss summer reads. So the books that we are reading over the summer where it's brighter outside and warmer, and we sometimes read things that are weirder than normal. Also known as, someone want to say it? I think, Charlie, it's your it's your classic summer in left field. <laughs> summer in left field, where we read about random things, but some other normal, less random things. So we didn't decide who was going to start. Does anybody want to start? Go ahead, Charlie. Okay, so... Take it away, Charlie. I'll start with what's maybe the farthest out in left field, and I'll come back to home plate by the end of the episode. So uh, we're on a Zoom call, so none of the listeners are going to see what I'm about to put up, but Tim and Andy will. So what they're looking at is... It's MythCon 1 Proceedings on Joy from September 4th through 9th of 1970. But I know whose handwriting that is that wrote that date on the cover, Charlie. I'm excited about this. So many of our listeners would know this handwriting too. Yes. So yes, MythCon is, it's a, it's like ETS. You know, it's like a it's a meeting of minds uh, to discuss topics. Only MythCon was a meeting of minds in California uh, on that particular year, where they're discussing C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and all of their writings. And this is like a journal, printed journal that includes the notes from the meeting, but it also includes the the presentations that were given at the meeting. So it's got papers on things. And I will just read through some of the uh, air quotes uh, articles that were published in this very theological journal. So wait, 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 wait. can we just, so this is basically ETS, but for mythological writing and it's going to be Lewis and Tolkien and it's from 1970. So that sounds amazing. Oh, and I perhaps bury the lead. So where this came from was when Dr. Myron Houghton passed away and they started going through his mass collection of books. He had a box of these things. It's like old paper printed, like journal articles, quote, journal articles, but it's not like theological journals. It's like mythological like fictional writing journals. So like this is from Myron Houghton's library. And when all of his library was donated to the faith library, the faith library said, we don't know what to do with this. (laughs) And, and that's when uh, I got a call and they're like, Charlie, do you want to look through any of this stuff? And uh, I saw it and was like, I I'll take these random things. And uh, I always in the back of my mind was like, you know what? Some, some summer we're just going to start reading through these like rando articles. And 
Uh, so I've started reading through them. I think there's about maybe 15 to 20 of these like old paper jank printed like journal articles. So like, you know, Tim is getting an article published in uh, the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, JETS. It's like that only instead of like intricate theological topics or, you know, articles discussing like exegesis of passages or theology, we're discussing like, oh, what are the, uh, what's the like aesthetic structure of the Lord of the Rings and things like that. And so I'll just read the first paragraph of it, uh, of the introduction. It's a convention, Tolkien Conference 3, MythCon 1, was a long dream come true for myself. It was held from the 4th to the 7th of September of 1970 on the campus of Harvey Mudd College, Claremont, California. Besides the papers read, which are printed here, there were many other activities occurring often at the same time. Several written impressions of the convention have already been printed in the seventh issue of Myth Lore, which is another journal of very similar ilk. And so here are some of the articles that are in here. Tolkien, Lewis, and Williams. It's like kind of like an ink, an Inklings article by C.S. Kilby. And Kilby uh, is an author who is uh, a well-renowned yeah. um, Tolkien scholar, wow. Lewis scholar. And uh, he's written a book on the Inklings, I believe, or uh, yeah. on, on one of them individually. Uh, article two, the structure and aesthetic of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Number three, on the natures and history of the Great Rings. So... Uh, about Lord of the Rings specifically. Uh, Farewell to the Shadowlands, C.S. Lewis on Death, Three Good Mothers, Galadriel, uh, Psyche, which is from um, The Four Loves, and uh, Sybil Coningsby, Archetypes of the Mother and the Fantasies of George MacDonald, The Lure of the Ring, Surprising Joy, C.S. Lewis's Deep Space Trilogy, uh, you know, jumping down a little farther, The Hanau Creatures of C.S. Lewis, so hey uh, now hey. oh boy oh boy sorry i had to bring back charlie's good joke yeah so it's it's just articles written about the writings of the inklings essentially and so it's it's a convention doing kind of what we do on our podcast where we read things we write things we talk about things this is just a pile of people that got together to talk about those things what i do not know which maybe we can never know I don't know where Dr. Myron would have got this. I don't know if he attended it. If so, that would be legendary. I doubt he attended it. Yeah. You know, didn't... Oh, sorry. If you, I didn't mean on Zoom, were you finished? Keep going. I yeah, just, I I just... I have an idea. Go ahead. Pose, pose he... your idea. Man, he's from like the pre-digital age, but he was like in the digital age, sort of at the very end there. I remember him... I think he would order books. You know how like the back of a book, it would be, there'd be like advertisements for other books. I have this memory of him like being the kind of guy that like used that. So I wonder if he somehow got connected to something like that and ordered it and ordered it. But man, you're right, Charlie, if he went to it, that would have been amazing. This, this would have been amazing. (laughs) It's the type of, uh, so he, he, where was it at? Where was that one at? California, you said? Yeah. In 1970. And, uh, yeah, I have no idea where he would have acquired such things. I've done some research. Like if you jump on eBay and try to find things like this, like there's almost nothing in existence. It's like a janky paper printed, like weird, weird backed, like thing, Mm -hmm. like little, yeah, it's, 
I bet there are very few of these that are in existence. Um, but he loved reading about C.S. Lewis. He had and Tolkien. He had a, a a very large section of his library dedicated not just to the Lord of the Rings or Lewis, but he had a lot of books about those authors and their their other writings that maybe are less popular. So I think this would have been a collection of his in the realm of let's learn more about the authors, which is really cool that he was doing that mm. in, in the background mm. of his theological studies, which makes me feel better about myself. And so I did read the the first article by Clyde S. Kilby, and he is uh, probably the most notable of the uh, submissions here as far as the name recognition. Kilby's written a handful of other things on Lewis, and uh, he talks about these three inklings, Tolkien, uh, Lewis, and Charles Williams, which we've never really talked about Williams on the podcast, um, but he was a profound writer. Um, that once he and the other guys connected, he became a quick and fast inkling. And uh, he notes a couple of things about their shared lives, their personal relationships, their literary relationships, where they interacted with each other's writings, which was really interesting. And then um, the last thing that he commented on is their, he calls it the common element of the three of them. And I'll just read a paragraph and I'll be done. Uh in a word, the two elements common to all three of these men are a deep-seated Christianity and a vivid imagination. Imagination, of course, is an element in all creative writing, but in our century, it is all but unique to find a far-flung imagination combined with an Orthodox Christianity. In Lewis's Paralandra, for instance, we have not simply a science fiction voyage to a planet Venus, but also a profound suggestion of what may have been the temptation in the Garden of Eden. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we have both a delightful set of adventures in the land of Narnia and a moving recall of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Charles Williams' Descent into Hell, we not only have an account of human and ghostly characters living in a new subdivision north of London, for uh, once a living man and a ghost look at the same window together, but we also see Pauline emerge. Pauline, I can't read the word because it's very jankily printed. Emerges from the haze of worldly social brilliances into the calm clarity of godliness. And so he he highlights that the thing that united these three guys was an orthodox or deep-seated Christianity, and they had profound imaginations, which is kind of cool. So hmm. anyway, there's a very left field option there. Well, I'll, I'll be guys, curious <clears throat> if you're able to get that read, what you I mean, if I know how life gets, but like, I'd be interested in some of that, like what it says and how those articles sound. So go ahead, yeah, Tim. Have oh, you sure, read Descent into Hell? I have not. I have it. Ah. Ooh. So uh, of fame, it is, I believe, number four on C.S. Lewis's list of top 10 books. Descent into Hell? Yeah, I believe uh, I, I'm, it's, it's on the list of his top 10 list. Hmm. That's where it's got. It's it's probably the only known work of Charles Williams to the mass public. It's still available. It looks a little well fun. Left fieldish. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm gonna try to read through maybe an article a week, and I have you know if each one of them has like 15 articles like this one, it'll take a while to purge through them, but. Mm. Well, I'm going to read a book. I, I'm trying to decide which one to talk about first. 
Um, but I think I'll, I think I'll talk about this one just because Charlie's in left field right now. So I don't think I've ever done a left field pick ever. If we go back to all my summer reads, but I was at my daughter's ear, nose and throat doctor, his, her ENT. And we were having an appointment a while back and it was really cool. I had a book, um, just on the table and he, it was a book about thinking God's thoughts. It's that worldview book I talked about a while back. He asked, Hey, what's that book about? And so I thought, Oh, interesting. Well, you ever have those situations where you think this is an opportunity to share the gospel and try to be a witness. And then the person's a Christian and you're happy, but you're also like, Oh man, that was, that was going good for a minute there. So anyways, he's a believer. And uh, so we started chatting and I said, so you asked me what I've read. I said, this is actually how I found out he's a believer. I said, so what are you reading? And he said, well, I'm actually been reading the Bible a lot lately. So three years ago, he and his wife decided they were just going to start reading through the Bible together every year. And after the first year, they decided to do a chronological Bible. And then after the second year, he said, I really want to mix it up. Are you guys familiar with the Grant Horner Bible reading system? It's the Bible reading system where you print off this. Jim Challies talked about it like eight years ago on his blog. Um, You print off 10 bookmarks and the bookmarks have sections of the Bible labeled and you put them in each spot in the Bible and you read one chapter a day from each bookmark. So the first bookmark is the Pentateuch. And so you just read one chapter of the Pentateuch. When you get to the end, you put it back at the beginning, you start over and just keep cycling. Um, one of them is the like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So probably sung a song. Uh, and then they're like, one of them is the book of Acts. And so you're always reading 10 chapters, but they're always at different rates. So you're reading different parts of the Bible you're seeing different connections. John MacArthur told Grant Horner, like he and Grant Horner worked at Masters, I think, for a while. Anyways, I asked him, I said, wow, I said, that's cool. I tried that and it was very hard and I couldn't do it. And uh, then I said, hey, so do you do you use an app or, or, or do you read a paper Bible? And I mean, it was like when we talk to Charlie and we say things like, Hey, reading and listening to a book are the same thing. He was like, Oh, I paper. And then he said, have you ever read this book? Um, the shallows or yeah, the shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains by Nicholas Carr. I said, I've heard of that. That's like on my, like, it's like a, in my productivity book world, it's not productivity, but, and he said, you should really read it. There's um, a bunch of brain studies they've done, and there's a bunch of research they've done that suggests that using a screen doesn't actually help your brain for long-term retention. Now, I've not read it, so I, ca- I can't recommend it. But it, it's interesting because he said even – so there's stuff you know, like watching a movie instead of reading a book. It's not That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the same thing. Um, but he's even saying – the the act of I think one of the things in this book is the act of reading like a web page is different than the act of reading a book because you scroll 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 stop whenever you want whereas like reading a book is a long long thing that you need to do and I think he also is going to talk about the difference of how everything on the internet is like quick 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 and there's like new stuff whereas like a book you have to like again go through it the long way so it looks really interesting so I've not read it I can't recommend it. The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. Secular book. Okay, so this, I don't know. I'm sure he's going to have like, we evolved from monkeys and that's why the internet's bad for us or something comments in there. Uh, But I do think it sounds like an interesting observation. And I would say that I really like Kindle books, but I still think there is something different 
not bad. I'm not saying I use Kindle all the time. I'm not saying it's bad and you can't use it. But I, when I do have the ability to go through a paper book, go slow, make notes, there is something about retention. And that's what my the doctor said. He's like, the, the retention for a paper book compared to like an ebook, he says, it's just off the charts better. So anyways, it looked interesting. And I thought, well, that's kind of left field. And so that's literally why I picked it up, Charlie. I had you in my mind. I had you in my mind. So <laughs> anyways, that's my first book. So, Tim, what do you so got for us? So if you're looking to come to Faith in the Fall, freshman, uh, and maybe you should get a paper book instead of uh, an ebook. It'll help your retention. <laughs> Tim, is there anywhere that the students in the fall could come and get paper books? Yeah, we might have a bookstore on campus that could help you out with that. Hey, incoming students get um, 25% off on their textbooks for, well, not the secular big nasty ones, but at least their regular priced ones. So... We do that for the students every fall and spring. And can I just comment on the massive stein that Andy is drinking coffee out of? I'm assuming it's coffee. Maybe it's water. No, this is water. My coffee's in my Mars Cafe mug. This is a 32 ounce giant handled Bubba mug without the top. So I just it's open top. That's my I gotta drink two of these every morning. It's how you it's how you keep the headaches away. Awesome blossom. Drink water, stay healthy. Okay, my first book for summer reads is Song of Songs for Singles. I mean, <laughs> I had to put that in here, right? How could Charlie, I not put that in there? Charlie, how did we not see that coming? <laughs> I have to have that in here. So, Tim, uh, Tim I mean, I'm literally, I, if, if someone said, what's Tim's first book going to be? I totally should have guessed this, but... <laughs> I didn't. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, so we in Song of Songs for Singles, where our purpose is twofold. One, to help the reader uh, understand God's design for love, marriage, and intimacy, but also to introduce you and to help you understand the Song of Songs. So in the introduction, we're kind of just laying the groundwork of the entire book. Uh, and trying to appeal to the reader that the Song of Songs should be read and studied by single people. Now, that doesn't mean that you that uh, uh, a boyfriend and a girlfriend should work through the book together. All right, that'd be a bad idea. But uh, generally, an uh, older man with younger men or an older woman with younger women would be a great uh, way to work through our book. But a person could just pick it up and read it themselves. So the first chapter is about the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs itself. So that one's going to be more background information and kind of laying the groundwork for how to read the Song of Songs. But we have one section where it's specifically about reading the Song of Songs and how you should be able to read the Song of Songs with maturity. In other words, you should be able to read certain words without blushing or giggling or being awkward. So chapter two, we begin working through the song. And we have our first chapter, or second chapter is Ignorance is Bliss and Knowledge is Power. And uh, in Ignorance is Bliss, we have this perception that, oh, knowledge is power. But actually, when it comes to intimacy, before you're married, ignorance is better. And then when you get married, you need to know, and you need to know your spouse. Uh, so that's kind of uh, the main idea in chapter two. 
chapter three, we talk about beauty. This was one of the more fiery chapters uh, with getting some feedback. Some people didn't like it, but I think it's really helpful in the end. It's really helped some people think through attraction and the role of attraction in selecting a spouse. And then what even this, this thing called beauty is. So it's chapter, chapter three, chapter four, there's the refrain, do not disturb, do not stir up or awaken love. And uh, we work through what does it mean to not stir up or awaken love in chapter four. Now, a lot of these themes we've talked a lot about on the podcast already. So I'm kind of going through them fast. But um, as far as like boundaries in a relationship, singles need to understand that God does expect there to be boundaries. Well, what are those boundaries and how can they love successfully? Chapter four is a big part of that. Okay, chapter five is about awakening the senses. That's the chapter title, Awakening the Senses. Uh, what we see in biblical design for intimacy is that it's sensuous. Uh, that idea is uh, found in Song 1 and 2. Uh, in that chapter, we particularly are highlighting flirting and the sense of hearing or the sense of speech. And we don't see a lot of uh, literature that talks to singles about, hey, is, is this good to say or is that good to say? When do you say I love you? And that kind of stuff. So we discuss um, those kinds of topics in Awakening the Senses. Chapter six is Finding Your Happily Ever After. Um, so this is song three, six to five, one. It's a large section of the song. Song three, six to five, one. Actually, I missed, I skipped a chapter. Chapter seven, hang on, where I go? Finding Your Happily Ever After I did. Chapter seven is Love Made Me Do It. Oh, hang on. No, no, chapter six is finding your happily ever after. Sorry, my bad. In song two, uh, song 215, it says, do, um, to seize the foxes, the jackals that spoil the vineyards. Well, um, that this section talks about how uh, problems are going to arise in a relationship. So how do you deal with those problems? Uh, and so song 215 uh, discusses the, the problems that, um, married couples have uh, in their relationship and then how to work through them. Chapter seven is probably one of the spiciest chapters. Um, I don't know, one of my reviewers was reading through it and wrote me about chapter seven. He's like, oh boy, this is going to be a fun one. It's, the title is Love Made Me Do It, and it's on song three, one through five. Uh, it, it compares the Song of Songs woman to the Proverbs 7 woman. And uh, it really uh, highlights some, uh, some a, a, a sexual ethic that, that's not talked about. And it's a, a difficult sexual ethic, but it, it, it can change and transform a marriage uh, from a wasteland into a Garden of Eden. So I think it's one of the best chapters. Chapter 7, Love Made Me Do It. And I think a lot of our Christian readers would find what the Bible has to say uh, concerning sexuality uh, surprising, um, particularly in chapter seven. Okay, chapter eight, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Uh, this is song three, six to five, one. Sorry, I'd gotten ahead of myself there. In this chapter, uh, it's basically what is God's design? Like, what is the way that God created intimacy to be? And so you have a, a wedding and you have a honeymoon. Uh, and we need to celebrate that God's design for intimacy. It is a good thing. And so in chapter eight, 
uh, we we work through that section. Um, chapter eight, people are probably gonna think, oh, that must be a real spicy chapter. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> I didn't think so anyway. I think chapters seven and then nine through 11 are the spiciest chapters. Not as far as like spicy as in it's talking about erotic stuff, but what the song is teaching uh, might be a little surprising to a lot of our listeners or the readers. Okay, so chapter nine, falling out of love is just another excuse. In this chapter, we talk about sexual dysfunction within a marriage. Um, one person wants to be intimate, another person doesn't want to be intimate. I wonder if I, the Bible has anything to say about that. It does. And this is the section, uh, song 5-2 to 6-3, falling out of love is just another excuse. Uh, and that one, and that's chapter nine. Chapter 10, love and war. It's all fair, right? So we think, and there's a lot of people that believe that the Bible, that the Song of Songs is just about the good aspects of, of love. But, but we all know that marriages have all kinds of issues. They have problems. They have wars. And in Song 6-4 to 7-10, you have a war. And the couple goes from the war to peace. And this is, again, one of the very, um, I think it can really help a lot of marriages and uh, to hopefully uh, equip uh, unmarried people when they do get married, this is the way life is and this is the way marriage is and that they can love more successfully. Okay, so love and war, it's all fair, right? In uh, chapter 11, you can recreate the Garden of Eden. So this is where, like, what is the biblical sexual ethic? Well, I think it's really encapsulated in chapter 11, where God design, designed intimacy to be Edenic. Uh, then chapters 12 and 13 are beginning love correctly, part one and part two. Uh, we're getting into the end of the book, song eight, five through 10, and song eight, 11 through 14. So that's basically the end. And then here we give a lot of practical advice uh, and then some charges to singles and uh, how they can find a spouse. So song eight, five through 14. Chapter 14 is not in the Song of Songs. It's all, are things different now? Uh, so we go to the New Testament and say, has anything changed? And we basically are saying, not a whole lot. A little bit, a little bit of an emphasis change, but it's, it's essentially the same. And, uh, and that's how we wrap up the book. So Song of Songs for Singles. It is supposed to ship to us June 22nd, and we should have it by our July 8th release date. So there it is. Boom. You should all get a copy and read it and give it a great review on Amazon.com, which when we're recording this, it's not up there yet. I've been working really hard to get it up on Amazon, but the Kindle book's there, but not the book book. And I'm working on it. Andy, I think you're on mute. Thank you, Charlie. Tim, is the Amazon book, <clears throat> like, can you buy it? Or just Not, shows it out there? Like pre-release? Um, you can uh, pre-order it by, by Kindle okay. right now. But the actual book right now we're recording, I haven't got it on there yet. I've been working really hard at it, and it's been complicated. So okay, almost soon, hopefully. <clears throat> I was going to say something about what you were talking about in one of the earlier chapters, maybe three. I'm trying to remember now. Sorry, I had a coughing fit. <clears throat> you had said you were talking about 
uh, how to like flirt or you're talking about flirting and the topic of flirting and what yeah. and how you should interact with other people and you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Thinking back to my, <clears throat> sorry, public school days, um, but even just, you know, you know, your teen years, I remember thinking no one in this, it's not their fault. This is my fault, but no one told me to not try to be really, really, really close friends with one girl or, you know what I'm saying? Like spend lots of time basically flirting and drawing yourself closer to another person. But what they were very clear about in my era with my youth groups is no sex before marriage. And then the big question was like kissing and making out and that sort of thing. And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about those. We should. But I do think even before that, there's a what's an appropriate relationship with a with another person in the opposite sex. And I think it sounded like that chapter might address some of that. I think that would be very needed, very needed for our culture today. Even just when you've done little devotionals at our kids ministry of uh, for like the, you know, the the K through six. Hey, you know what? That's not it's not time for that, kids. Uh, That's just been helpful. On the other hand, Disney is, you know, let's cultivate that as much as we can. So that's always annoying. Yeah. I I just want to add that comment. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate that. We kind of discuss like you, you know, sometimes well, we want affection, we want to be loved. And, and so we say some things that we shouldn't frequently. So there's one young man I was discussing, I was talking to, and he was talking to like some, I don't know, he was like 18 and some girl like was 14 in the youth group and and he was commenting and just chatting with her texting with her and asking her you know if you were interested in a guy like me you know what would you be interested in like a spouse and Uh, so hmm. uh, i mean he was seriously just trying to be genuine (laughs) and you know like is there any problem with me or i don't know like Mm -hmm. i'm like but think what that does to her because yep. she already likes you, okay? And is that loving your sister? You need to be careful with your speech because speech is actually one of the most awakening uh, senses. And we see that in the song. So we talk about that. And then this whole thing about saying, I love you. You know, when is it appropriate to say, I love you? To think through, oh, I love you. Well, the song explicitly states not to stir up or awaken love. When you mm. tell somebody that you love them, what is that stirring up in them? <laughs> Might it be awakening love in them for you? So is that really loving that person to tell them that you love them? So we kind of talk about a couple of those kinds of things. And uh, I hope it's helpful. I think it. I you all need to read it and give it five-star reviews on Amazon when it's there. <laughs> There's the <Please>. task. <laughs> All right, so we'll go from Song of Songs and Kissing and I Love You to Back to Left Field. How's that sound? Sounds good. So I, don't, I, have, I have like one book in Left Field. I'm not, and I don't even know if I'm going to read it. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm a Left Field <clears throat> kind of guy. And so I only have, <laughs> I only have one book too, Tim, so don't feel bad. I just had that one field book and I only did it because Charlie's been doing Left Field for like, <laughs> have you done it every summer, Charlie? Or not the first summer. Well, I don't I think, think the first summer you did a normal one. I mean, the term would be a bit anachronistic at first because we didn't call it that. But yes, I we I read strange things often. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, I think you coined the phrase. Maybe it was year two. Yeah. Maybe it was summer two. You coined the phrase summer in left field or I whatever. Think, 
I think I th- we should go I back thought, and look. Yeah, I thought you coined the term. Oh, I'm not sure. No, I think you're. I think you're right. I think I was saying they're all out of left field. I don't know. We we'll just we'll I'll take it. That's fine. <laughs> hey, revisionist history. We can make history whatever we want it to be. Are horrendous. <laughs> we are the victors. We write the books. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so I've got two books that I've, I think I've mentioned both of them before, but I am in the midst of reading them. One is uh, Holt Collier, His Life, His Roosevelt Hunts, and the Origin of the Teddy Bear. And there's oh, a beautiful, yeah. beautiful little cover there. <clears throat> and uh, he's a... Um, a fairly influential black man in the civil war era has personal relationship with Teddy Roosevelt. That's where we get Teddy bear from. So it's kind of just the story of his life and kind of the most famous parts of his life, obviously is the, the Roosevelt hunts and things like that. And uh, then the other one is the education of little tree. And I think I mentioned that briefly. Uh, what's unique about that is it's very similar to where the red fern grows, that type of a, coming of age, young fiction type of a book. It is described in the introduction or the preface as an uh, like an autobiography that the author is telling you his story as a Native American child. You find out later that the guy who wrote it, Forrest Carter, is actually not his name. He had changed his name from Asa Carter, and there's a book that just came out about him called Unmasking the Klansman. And uh, so Forrest Carter was a speechwriter for uh, desegregation, or uh, excuse me, uh, he, he was he's a leader in the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi, I believe. And so, or might have been Alabama. I, I don't know the details of him, but he's he's a he's a guy that our culture would love to cancel. And so this book sold almost a million copies. Once Oprah put it on her book club, they found out about who the author was and then it got pulled and pretty much blacklisted. Like it's a banned book. And so the interesting part of reading that is how could a very wicked person, a Ku Klux Klan leader, you know, very uh, racist, we would imagine, how could he write this beautiful little children's book? <laughs> and it, it becomes Ooh. it becomes a very interesting discussion in hermeneutics. So like we read the book and if you don't know that about the author, you're going to love it. But then you know that about the author and you're like, well, does the author's viewpoint or his background have any bearing on what he wrote? And uh, there's literally a podcast on this book by other people. And the name of the podcast is and I quote, the death of the author, where they are ooh, argue, ooh. they argue that <clears throat> if you can get meaning out of that text, that doesn't have anything to do with the author, and you should read it and get meaning from it and love it anyway, because the author's meaning doesn't matter. And it's so like, literally their podcast is devoted to the reader response hermeneutic. Exactly. And and so they're like the opposite uh, of us. Yeah. And so, and so it is, it is pretty left field, but the reason I'm reading it is is I'm reading it. It's kind of a case study in hermeneutics in my mind. And so it's really, and I will say it is a very, I think it is very beautifully written. I think the guy was very intelligent. He wrote speeches. Um, He was a politician. And so I think he's very well-spoken. But then another quote from another podcast is, you know, if, if this book was intending to teach me how to be racist, it really didn't do it. If it was teaching mm. me to love my grandparents, it did that really well. Interesting. 
So like it, it pretty much the whole book is about this young orphaned native American boy who gets raised by his grandparents. And, um, I think it is a very, it has some nice features to it, but I'll reserve full judgment for when I finished it. I'm about halfway through it. So those you know, are books two and three of Charlie's summer. So that last one, Charlie is interesting because the same thing happens sometimes with our music. <laughs> There's a yes. song we sing at church all the time. Well, I don't know. We sing it pretty regularly. Um, God of grace and God of glory. God of grace and God of glory on your people for your power. Da, 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 that whole thing. It's interesting. And if you read the lyrics, they seem pretty benign. The, the, the author is Harry Emerson Fosdick. And so Bad. since uh, I know since, since Dr. George was such a good church historian teacher, like that's been burned into my mind. And so I remember <clears throat> this is probably 15 years ago, me and uh, now pastor Jay Chapman in Carroll, Iowa, and then another guy in our church, um, this came up and I can't remember. I emailed, maybe I emailed Jay and then Jay emailed me back and emailed this other guy. And we were kind of batting around this idea. Well, would he have meant liberal theology? So then like when we mm -hmm. sing it now, I obviously don't mean liberalism, but if you, if you know, he's a liberal and then you reread the lyrics, you can kind of see where. Oh, he, this is, this could go either way. If you're a liberal theologian, you would be okay with this. And if you're a fundamentalist at the time, you, you would have been okay with this. So I think I posed some question like, I don't know, what if we had a hymn that was great, but it was written by, this was 15 years ago. Okay. So like Lady Gaga or something. And uh, the one guy in the comment was in the, inter, in the email basically took the tack that, well, it doesn't matter if she wrote it, but it's really good. It's okay. So it's weird. I'm with you, Charlie. Like, what do you, what do you do? So that's a, that, well, that's an interesting conundrum. And you get, you get into the same discussion <clears throat> with like a doctrinal statement. So a creed or a confession that is supposed to very intentionally and precisely indicate one's belief. However, if I can read that document and not care about the intent of the words and can make yeah. them mean whatever I want them to mean, you no longer have a doctrinal <clears throat> statement. So uh, it is, so what would we say? Like, let's say if we went to chat GPT and said, write a hymn <laughs> and we can read, we can read and sing that hymn and it can mean whatever we want it to mean. But does that mean that is what it meant? Yeah. I think with, with the Harry Emerson Fosdick song, it could, you know, that could be a real issue. I think, I think there's maybe two things going on though, because like this one, the book you're talking about, the, the one reviewer said, if he was, what do you say? If he was trying to teach me racism, he did a bad job. But yeah. if he's trying to teach me to love my grandparents, he did a good job. So then this could be more like, what if a bad person wrote something good? Yeah. Do, do we, so then there's like a, there's like the hermeneutical interpretive one. And then there's the whole like, yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the aesthetics, not, well, not like, it's not, it's hard. Cause I, are we, are we making a poisoning the well argument here well, or a so, genetic yeah, so, fallacy? You're, you're on you're, you're to something there. But I think we have discussed this before with Dr. Boyd, where you can have good writing. It is skillfully done. It's written <clears throat> beautifully, but it's teaching something that is not beautiful. And that those are the things you have to be very aware of mm -hmm. because they, they can sway you. It's like the words of uh, Saruman, 
You know, it's, it's only evil, but it's beautiful and it can sway the hearts of everyone listening. But anyway, Tim has a comment. A lot of times we want bad people to be bad completely. Yep. Oh, this is good. But a lot of times what we actually have is some people are very bad in like one area, but they may be very good in another area. Yep. So, I mean, if nobody can read his racism in the book, this might be an area where he actually reflected a biblical worldview. So as they discuss him, they get into three options. He's crazy, like literally crazy, like schizophrenic. Two, he's repentant. So he changed his mind later in his life, and that reflected in his writings. Or three, he's pushing some deep-seated political agenda, but he didn't want to be a white supremacist talking about Nazis and African Americans. So he talked about Native Americans, and he's like, look what the government did to the Native Americans. Those are the three predominant theories. And uh, I already have an idea of what I think, but I'll, I'll reserve that for another time. So. I'd like to also mention there might be another option in that he, a lot of Ku Klux Klan I shouldn't say a lot. I haven't done a lot of research, but I know at least some of them were very family oriented. And so he could have been a racist who actually understood a biblical family ethic and didn't see a discontinuity between those two things. So just to give another very famous theological example, we applaud Martin Luther for his justification doctrine. He was very strongly, very strongly anti-Semite, correct? Like anti-Jew. And so, but that gets downplayed to is like, oh, the Reformation. And so very commonly, there are people that are really strong or good in one area. And like, they've got, you know, cobwebs in the corners. And so. Or dead bodies or something. Yikes. So it is also interesting. You see this, I think today with cancel culture, we have this, there's a, some sort of thing out there in the culture. Um, and like you said, Tim, good people are good and bad people are bad. And then even cancel culture operates like that. <laughs> you can do this really good thing and then one bad thing happens and you're done. So I wonder if there's also some sort of um, the, the human nature going on where think about, an, think about um, when you're an unbeliever and you are, you are um, trying to, to, to overcome your sin, right? And so unbelievers, all of us, even believers, and, you know, we, we, we go back into it, uh, our old ways, what do we try to do? <clears throat> we try to justify ourselves by, by doing good things to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And, and when we do that, the good things don't make up for it. But if we do a good enough thing, it's funny, we sort of start to think of ourselves righteously. So there is this, I, I wonder if what we're seeing in this whole discussion, the, 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 the fact that it's hard for us to believe that someone can be so good and so bad at the same time hmm. is the inborn, inborn um, self-justification that's sort of part of our fallen nature is, is there <clears throat> and very prominent. And so then, you know, when someone's good, we just assume, okay, they're all good. Cause that's like how we think we don't, we don't think in full biblical anthropological terms. I mean, we Christians do often, I'm not saying Christians don't, but I'm just saying the world, especially like, how can they be so good and so bad? Well, that's, that's a biblical way of understanding humans. So mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Anyways. Well, for my next book, I'm going to recommend a book to read that I've already read, and I'm going to maybe reread it. Uh, this book is called A Student's Guide to Culture by Brett Kunkel and John Stone Street. It's a really good book. It's made for high school. I mean, I, I mean, college students, young adults, <clears throat> but it could easily be this could easily be a really great book to go through in a church, like a, a go week to week, read a chapter, talk about it. Um, the reason I'm recommending this is I really did enjoy it. I, I really thought this was really good when I read it last summer. And I teach the high school boys Sunday school class at my church now. And one of the high school guys said, Mr. Stearns, do you have any book recommendations? And I said, I do. Now, this this high schooler has some artistic abilities. He's he's done some art competitions. And uh, I said, sure, I got two for you. And so I recommended Art and Music, a Student's Guide. And then I recommended this one. And I grabbed two of them off of thrift books for like dirt cheap and just gave them to him and i told him i said hey you read these and uh if our schedules work out once you i I said read it write down something at the end of each chapter you know write a summary of what you read like a couple sentences or don't and just take some notes and then he he happens to live really really close where he can just walk like a block over to my house and so sometime he's gonna if he's read either of these he'll walk over and we'll drink some i don't know cold water and talk about these books but I, but I really like, and Tim probably knows this guy pretty well because he lives in his house. Um, <clears throat> here's here's just a little taste of the book. So if you're if you're a college student and you're listening to this, this book is going to be a great option for you. Let me tell you why it would be helpful to you. It's not going to be too hard for you to read. It's going to be written at a level to where you're going to be able to knock this book out in the summer. And you'll be able to look back and say, I've read a book. It was a good book. It was helpful for me, but it's not going to be like reading one of those textbooks that you don't want to read because it's boring and uninteresting. And it's not going to be like reading a textbook that you don't want to read because it's too complicated and hard to understand. This one is going to be very helpful. The second reason I think this is a good book for you college student is because at the end of each chapter, this guy is going to have a list of books that he read. And you can find books if you want to go deeper. And I think as a college student, you should be doing this. That's part of your life now. Uh, You should be stewarding the knowledge that God gives you, and you should go deeper. And so this book is going to be a good option for you. Now, let let me step back and give a recommendation for parents. Parents, this stuff's all over culture. And if you're a parent, you already know, like, I'm just going to. Uh, once he, so the first part of the book, he's talking about what culture is. <clears throat> That's a pretty good discussion. Now, I, my, one of my long-term goals is to read more about culture. So, uh, Joseph Pieper and, and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, anyways, there's a bunch of culture people and I want to read more in culture. I got a reading list from Dr. Bowder actually about a decade ago on culture and I haven't made it. Culture but, and anarchy. Yeah, that's it. By what's his, what's the author's name? I read it. I forget right now. That's the, I can look that up. one and Peeper are the two that I think of. And then I know there's more to go, but he does a good discussion at the beginning. And then his big part two is topics. And so once he lays out what he says culture is, then he talks about the information age, the loss of identity, being alone together. So those are three elements of our culture today. We're in an information age. Uh, we are together but we're kind of alone so we don't oh go ahead tim you got the night you got the author matthew arnold that's it Ah, it was an a name in my head and i couldn't figure out Mm -hmm. good job uh so anyways and then being uh 
the loss of identity. It's interesting that chapter. Just I'm, you should read this. This is these chapters are really helpful. Then the next major section is he just goes goes through all these topics. So talks about pornography, hookup culture, sexual orientation, gender identity, affluence, and com, com, consumerism. That was an interesting chapter because he's sort of looking at the American situation compared to other places in the world. And I thought there was some interesting stuff there. Addiction, which that chapter, um, I think if you're a biblical counseling person, you're going to see the weakness in that chapter, but it's not a, it's not a hundred percent weak. I would say it that way. And then <clears throat> 14 is on racial tension. And I think, I think that one was a good start. And I think it was a good start. And then the last section is how to build a Christian worldview. And he basically just talks about how to read the Bible, why you should trust the Bible. Um, he talks about the right kind of pluralism, which is interesting, and then taking the gospel to the culture. So I, I liked the book. I thought it was good. I'm just going to read a quote, though. So apparent, if you're like, really, should I read this? I think you should. This would give you a once over on some things that you've probably been concerned about. You've probably been seeing it. You've probably been wondering what should we do with it. Um, if you're a youth pastor or a pastor or a discipler, this would be a great book for you also. And you could walk through it with them, someone you're discipling or your youth group. And uh, I think it would be helpful. So here's chapter 13. Entertainment is the topic. And he starts off by a quote with, with a quote from Walt Disney. So this is Walt Disney himself. He says, movies can and do have a tremendous influence in shaping young lives in the realm of entertainment toward the ideals and objectives of normal adulthood he starts off by talking about the star wars movies <clears throat> so this is that was the disney quote then i'm going to read a section where he talks about star wars movie producer george lucas who created star wars recognized that these movie recognized these movies as more than mere entertainment now here's a quote from lucas star wars is designed primarily to make young people think about the about the mystery, not to say here is the answer. It is to say, it is to say, think about this for a second. Is there a God? What does God look like? What does God sound like? What does God feel like? How do we relate to God? So you, you got that's like Lucas right there in his own words. <clears throat> So what I liked about this book is it's there's a lot of quotes like that. There's a lot of quotes like that where um, is Star Wars dangerous? Can you watch it? Can you, you know, blah, blah, blah. But here is in George Lucas's own words, his point of writing Star Wars, other than just being entertaining and he's a creator and an artist, was that he wanted young people to ask these questions. Now, he says, Lucas says in this quote, it's not really to give you the answer. It's just to make you ask the question. I would say that's not correct. Lucas is giving an answer. He is. And I think that anyone who raises a question, if you get to know them, they're going to have an answer that they believe, and that's going to filter into you. So anyways, this is a good book. And even if it just gets you thinking about stuff that you haven't thought about before, I think it would be a good book for you. So that's what my the second. The, stu the title is A Student's Guide to Culture. And the authors are Brett Kunkel and John Stone Street. Brett Kunkel works for um, uh, uh, Greg Kokel. He works at Stand to Reason. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Kunkel even came to Des Moines Christian School about eight years ago um, and did like an apologetics conference. So he he goes around and speaks for him. He's another speaker. <laughs> and then John Stone Street, I'm not as familiar with him. Uh, I think he's done uh, min- ministry writing, apologetics work. I'm I can't I'm not, I'm not totally familiar. Um, I wouldn't say that this book is going to be the final book you read on this topic, everybody, but it's definitely a great starter book. And even if you already know these things, it's going to give you a good structure to talk about things and 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 push your studies forward. So I read it last summer and I really enjoyed it. And it was it was really good. And I think I read it. We were driving here and there and in the car, and I think I was reading it. Um, so I would recommend it. So Students Guide to Culture, Kunkel and Stone Street. I'll have to get some in the bookstore. I don't have it. It'd be a good one to have in the bookstore, actually. They've got another one, A Practical Guide to Culture. I, helping, I bought that. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Read read the whole title. Sorry. Helping the Next Generation Navigate to <clears throat> Today's World. So I, I downloaded I bought that on Kindle also and intended to read it after I finished this one. And then I I just never made it back to it. But that one looks interesting also. Okay, I think I'm up. And my next book is Musing on God's Music, Forming Hearts of Praise with the Psalms by Scott Annual. Uh, So this is Scott's brand new book. It came out, (coughs) well, the Amazon thing here says April 15th. Uh, We just got it in our bookstore, and we want to bring Scott on the podcast sometime to talk about it. Uh, Scott's one of his big points in this book is that Psalms, are um, ordered a specific way and it it helps us to formulate a theology of worship by if we study the psalms we will we will we can formulate our theology of worship he would even use the word liturgy for worship uh, based upon the uh, how things are ordered in the psalms so this is a topic that really intrigues me uh, both from an old testament perspective and even a practical theology perspective. Um, I've been very impressed by some of Scott's other writings and my own personal study just of the Old Testament, the emphasis on on, uh, purity and holiness as one comes to the Lord in worship. And that's something that has um, even affected me and that I've tried to come to come to a time of worship, uh, having gone through some kind of repentance or confession, uh, contemplating even just thinking, you know, what am I worshiping God in a, with a pure heart? Um, so when you start just saying, oh, well, if I'm going to worship God, I have to have a, to worship God, I have to have a pure heart. Well, then what should I do before I spend some time in worship? Confess my sin, draw close to mm-hmm. the Lord through mm-hmm. personal sanctification. Okay. Well, just moving from there to there, point A to point B, that's almost starting to develop kind of a liturgy in how things are ordered. Before you worship God, you need to do something. What do you need to do? You need to confess your sins. So Scott kind of makes this, there's more to it than that, but that one is, I think, really clear in Scripture. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, repeatedly in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, Um and and so Scott kind of makes that case also from the Psalms in this book, and there's a more elaborate structure too. So I want to study that out. Musing on God's music, forming hearts of praise with the Psalms. And I, I'm looking forward to reading that one. Who who wrote that one more time? Scott Annual. 
friend of the podcast. I, oh, yeah. I knew it. I knew, knew it. it. Charlie asked a question. I'm like, I know where he's going with this. Yeah. <laughs> so for the sake of time, I will lump all of my remaining titles into one category, which um, whoa. <laughs> will, will, will run the bases. So we're out in left field. Now we're out of left field. We're up to, up to bat. And we are going to have some stronger, uh, stronger titles here. So, um, the first I will just lump together. They are Mark Dever's New Testament and Old Testament theology books. So, um, the message of the New Testament promises kept forward by John MacArthur, and then message of the Old Testament um, promises made. So it's it's kind of his two part volume on Old Testament theology, New Testament theology. And uh, I got a chance to look at those when I was out there at Nine Marks, and they are interesting. Uh, I Mainly, I kind of want to just see how he deals with the Old Testament, uh, knowing their eschatology. And so uh, I think that that is more intriguing to me is the Old Testament one. But That'll be interesting what you what you come up with. I'll be very interested to hear what yeah, you find. And, and then obviously you can't you can't buy a promises made title and you can't not buy promises kept you know (laughs) (laughs) so so i bought them both together and then uh the other two books uh we have a a strong nine marks theme obviously after uh last week's episode but two books that i'm excited to read from them uh discipling by mark dever uh one of the rainbow series and uh, obviously writing a book on discipleship it's nice to read what other people are saying and uh, it's nice to know that um, in one sense, you're not crazy, but it's it's nice to hear ideas discussed uh, from a slightly different perspective, which is good. Mm-hmm. And as Tim is smiling and nodding, Tim, you know what I paid really close attention to? What? The preface. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, Tim read my prefaces and is like, this is horrendous. You need a new preface. <laughs> so, so I'm writing a new preface. So I'm listening. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the other one hey, that I'm hey, excited—that's that's wisdom, right there, man. That's wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> I will say he uses a lot of personal pronouns in the chapters, so I might have to sprinkle some back in. I don't know. We'll see. Um, the other book, uh, "Character Matters: Shepherding in the Fruit hmm. of the Spirit" by Aaron Minikoff. Uh, I don't know who Ooh. that pastor really is at all. Um, it is a nine marks book, but it, yeah, I just um, excited. I love to read that cover. Yeah, I know you can't judge a book by the cover, but that's just really cool cover. Yeah. Um, So a a handful of nine marks theological titles that I'm uh, looking forward to reading over the summer. And then the last thing is, uh, which I think I can't really recommend any of the other books that I just mentioned, uh, starting with MythCon Proceedings, you know, if that's a title. But the book that I am comfortable uh, recommending to all our Mm. listeners is uh, New Morning Mercies, a daily gospel devotional by Paul David Tripp. And uh, I, I've never really been a fan of like the devotional books, um, but this was given to me a handful of years ago and I'm trying to use it. Uh, I, I'm, I think faith did this to me. I'm much more just like open your Bible and study the text. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't really want to hear someone telling me about the text. I want to study the text, but uh, I do really like new morning mercies. And so using that over the summer here devotionally as well. So uh, that's, I guess one of those is the hit and then it's running around all four bases. So 
Um, we'll start with promises made. You hit the ball and then you run all the way around those books and you get back to home plate and promises kept. Okay. <laughs> that was good. I like the illustration there. So I think something that, <clears throat> sorry, I think something that Trip does really, really well, I would say that his strong suit, in my opinion, is he can think about what truth from scripture looks like in very clear, detailed situations. So I would say that when it comes to the like the three parts of Bible study, observation, interpretation, application, I think that he does a really good job at the application part. So when I read him, sometimes I feel like he's he's able to take the text and make me think about what it looks like day to day, which I think that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know that I would. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's interesting, Charlie, that you have a trip book that you're recommending. Because my next book is by trip also. So I'm going through not a sponsor, a, not a sponsor. So I'm going through a bit of a storm right now in my life. And so my friend, Jeff Newman, also Charlie say it friend of the podcast, <clears throat> friend of the podcast. He's like, like mentor of the podcast. Like he's got to have like a different title because influence has been wider or deeper. Could we, could we call him the Pope? <laughs> I don't think Pope. he the Pope the of pod, the podcast. The podcast Pope. We can oh, make him horrendous. An, we can make him an ephod with our Thinklings logo on it. Wow! Horrendous. I just I feel like <laughs> that. Just he's gonna say something when he when he or his wife listens to this, and I'll let you know what he says. Horrendous. That's um, what he'll say. Horrendous. He will. He really will. I said it for him. He was. He probably just. He probably just said exactly. Um. He would so say anyways, something like this. He would say, "He'd be like, you know, Charlie, you can take the student out of college, but you can't take the college out of the student." Which is what he said to me when I went to seminary. That's boy, that is not wrong. I and and you were almost slow enough. You were getting really close in the octaves right there. Not quite, but very close. Um. <clears throat> so, anyways. I've had a couple conversations with him. He's been checking in with me. He's been texting me just to make sure I'm doing okay. Um, but he said, Hey, would you like to read a book together? And we'll read, it's just a, a devotional book. And we would read a page a day. And then we'd each text a quote back to each other from what we read. And I said, what's the book? And it's by Paul Tripp. It's called a shelter in the time of storm meditations on God and trouble. And I thought, Ooh, that sounds okay. It's 52 devotionals, so I don't know if it's meant to go uh, week by week through the year, <clears throat> but they're very short. And it starts off with um, him telling a story of his daughter. I did not know this. So his daughter was walking down the street in Philadelphia uh, and got hit by a drunk driver. Like she's walking, car hits her, <clears throat> and he crushed her against a wall. And so the daughter had many, many months of uh, probably surgeries and operations and whatnot. And so here's just a paragraph. He says, there are many mysteries to this moment in our lives that we will never solve. Yet there are a few things that we know for sure. We really do live in a fallen world. We haven't been given a ticket out of the brokenness of this world simply because we are children of God. What happened to our daughter was a horrible injustice followed by day upon day of remarkable pain. The world we live in simply is not operating the way God intended. The second thing we know for sure is this. There is a God of awesome grace 
who meets his children in moments of darkness and difficulty. He is worth running to. He is worth waiting for. He brings rest when it seems like there's no rest to be found. And he keeps going on with more things. And then the the premise of the book is he's going to uh, work through Psalm 27 with you. And it's not, I've, I've literally read the preface or the introduction and uh, Dr. Newman or Jeff has read every day. And I think I'm four or five days behind and I haven't read anything. So this is my goal is to get caught up. So by the time he hears this, hopefully I'm caught up. But um, when he lays out why he likes Psalm 27, which is funny because that ties into Tim's book. He says he he likes it for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's shock value to the psalm, which I haven't really gotten through the psalm yet, but David's crying out for help in his adversaries. Um, it it has a a, patient, a call to patiently hope in the midst of trouble. I think that was a good one. And he says it's regularity. I want to read a quote about that. Um, psalm 27 gives an accurate and familiar picture of what normal life is like in a fallen world. A moment of high worship is followed by a situation of trouble. A moment of insight is followed by a moment of confusion. Rest is followed by threat. Call is followed by action, or a call to action is followed by a need to wait. Confidence that God is near is followed by desperate plea that he would hear and answer. These are the variegated colors of a world in need of restoration. These are the regular ups and downs, the ins and outs, the highs and lows of living with the Lord in a place that is broken. When you read this psalm, you get the impression that David lived where we live. I thought that was a a really good capturing quote. So anyways, I'm going to work through it and I'll let you know a recommendation at the end of the summer. And that's my commitment to actually finish this one. I will say one thing. This is Trip, and so no one who knows Trip is not going to expect this. But the third thing he's thankful for about this psalm is its focus on Christ. And so he goes on, he says, underneath the psalm's accurate depiction of the here and there experience of the world that we all live in, there's a deeper theme. This theme is really the unifying theme of the psalm. It is the thing that gives the psalm, uh, the psalm of trouble and faith its hope. What is the theme? It is Christ. All of the fingers of the psalm point to Christ. Jesus came to earth knowing the trouble he would face, but was not afraid. He knew his father would be his light and his salvation. Jesus knew that his enemies would stumble and fall. In the cross's most dramatic moment, it was Jesus who cried to his father not to turn away in anger. It was Jesus who said he would not be alone, even though his father and mother would forsake him. Jesus faced false witnesses who were intent on violence. Beneath everything else, this is a psalm of sin and redemption. And because of that, again and again, it points us to the Redeemer who will come to suffer injustice, violence, and ultimately the rejection of his fathers that we might know forgiveness, acceptance, life, and hope. I thought that was interesting, and I would agree. I think it applies to Christ. Christ has walked this path. I just thought the way he said it, it was focused, he's, he's, you know, he's Amil and he's covenant. And so when I saw its focus on Christ, I thought, oh boy, here comes typology and all that. Um, but I actually think it was just, it was a fair application, a fair connection application. So for me, since I've got that in my head, I'll probably read with my radar turned on. But I, I've so far liked what I've read. So mm-hmm. that's, I, I think I could recommend it. I think I'll wait till summer to for sure recommend it. Um, but I'm, but I am thankful 
to have a fellow believer who cares enough to say, hey, let's do this and let's keep in contact. So that's a blessing. So that's the last of my summer reads I'm going to recommend. So my uh, last two, I'm going to have two, are building off of and building into what I'm talking or working on for my summer project. Um, so I'm presenting a paper at the Bible Faculty Leadership Summit the beginning of August, and I'll talk about that in a future episode. But um, Zachary Wagner wrote Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. I gave a preliminary review of this one uh, a month ago or something, and uh, we'll come back to it at another time. There's two other books that have released here recently. This whole idea of toxic masculinity has kind of hit the Christian presses. Um, Shayla Ray Gregory has written, she deserves better raising girls to resist toxic teachings on sex, self, and speaking up. Uh, so that's one that I want to read. I don't think I will have very good things to say about it. And then the next one is the toxic war on masculinity, how Christianity reconciles the sexes by Nancy Piercy. Nancy Piercy's written a lot of really good books that I've liked. Saving Leonardo is one of them she's got another one too i'm blanking out on the title but uh it's on truth it's it's a really good book yeah truth, truth. Uh, tr uh truth anyway. matters yeah it's really good so this one um i i don't know i'm gonna withhold judgment i think this one's gonna be good i i am i'm hopeful uh for it so so um the toxic war on masculinity how christianity reconciles the sexist so those are two uh, Nancy Piercy's releases in June and um, Shayla Ray Gregory's just came out in April and Zachary Wagner's book came out like in February or something. So uh, kind of that's what's coming out right now and part of the current conversation. And I want to kind of stay abreast on that. Those are my last two. I decided not to do my left field, by the way. Uh, I had a couple of others that was potential, but I'm not going to read them. I know I'm not going to read them. Okay, then that's that's fair, man. That's fair. If you're not going to read it, don't recommend. I don't have time. I've got other stuff I've got to do. Didn't you have a chapter that's all as fair in love and war too? Don't you? So you I know do. we understand. To life. So here, I'll I'll cap our summer reads with a verse, just because we always should do that. Probably. Amen. Amen. And uh, so, <clears throat> not to inappropriately apply a verse out of context. Second uh, Timothy two twenty two, which we've mentioned before, but in the midst of discussing reading, and which I would say is a great pursuit that we should cultivate a desire to read and to read good things. Uh, so Second Timothy two twenty two, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along mm. with those who call on the Lord mm. from a pure heart. And so. Uh, I th you just, you know, understand the desires that are at work and the competition of your heart. As I, I look out my window and it's a beautiful summer day and there's a thousand other things that we could do, uh, make mm -hmm. time to read good books and talk about them with your friends. We'll see you next week on the Thinklings Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, 
talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings Podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast.